2: Hi, my name is Maureen Metcalf. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. Today we're talking again to Robin Lincoln Wood about Thrivability. This is part two in our discussions. Dr. Wood's a renowned strategist, futurist, communicator, and agent of transformation. He spent three decades working at the board level with the world's leading organization in 35 countries on four continents. He's deeply skilled in designing and catalyzing major shifts and large-scale changes and inspiring and empowering teams that deliver them. Robin's mission is to catalyze and support leaders, organizations, and the innovations they co-create to produce a thriving global future. He does this as a keynote speaker, consultant and leader and also as the the leader and founder of the Thrivability Foundation and Consortium. Today we're going to further explore Robin's work in the Thrivability framework and also how leadership impacts the ability of organizations to implement this thre- this framework. Uh, This is an exceptional tool in helping us make the transitions toward creating the the future that we're trying to and also averting some of the negative consequences that we're uh, all seeing a bit uh, as we face uh, unpredicted weather changes and and volatility in our world. So as we think about this radio series, the Voice America series – One of my goals is providing leaders and emerging leaders with tools that will help them uh, be more prepared and more effective in this very dynamic environment that we're facing. So we're trying to share different models, get perspectives from CEOs and leaders, and really talk about what do we do to implement those in your lives. So my hope is that with each show, uh, what our listeners walk away with is one or two areas that you can look at implementing in your own life. So if the leader of the future demonstrates the characteristic of acting like a scientist as well as, as someone who is knows the answer and implements the answer, but also open to trying new behaviors, then what are you hearing from each weekly show that you can experiment with in implementing leadership in your own environment? When I started consulting years ago, I I would work with leaders who were hired as as rock stars in their fields. Uh, They were highly effective. And in a few years, five years, sometimes less, those people who were perceived as exceptional were in some cases let go. These these were folks who were working crazy long hours, highly dedicated to the organization. And what was leading edge when they were fired was – Uh, becoming obsolete as they were let go. So one of the things that became clear to me in a very personal way was that leaders who aren't updating their own leadership style or or we would call that almost their their leadership operating system are at risk of becoming obsolete. So it's no longer enough to do an exceptional job of leading the organization. Now the leader also has to add to their Uh, Concept of doing a good job—that they're updating themselves, in addition to delivering high-quality products. So, with that in mind, uh, let's uh, shift back to Robin and let's start with a recap and an overview of what is Thrivability. So, can you walk us through your research? Uh, Robin has recently published a book. Um, about thriveability, and one of the things he did is interviewed fifty of the world's top thriveability leaders on the planet, and and he can talk about what they're doing and how this how this framework came about based on his earlier work and learnings, and then what he was able to call from these top leaders.
3: Well, thank you very much, Maureen, and uh, a welcome to all the the listeners out there. It's a pleasure again. With you, And to share some of the insights, as you say, that we've uh, gathered over the years, and in particular, I'd say that the, the first 15 years of the 21st century have seen a, a complete uh, transformation in what it means to be a leader and what it <clears throat> means to be uh, at the forefront of your field in, in uh, most large organizations. At the same time, it's also becoming increasingly challenging to being an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur if you're inside a company and wishing to uh, institute a new order of things. Now, uh, so Thrivability is really uh, a composite creature. It's made up of many different ingredients, but they're unified by a single overarching uh, calculus, which describes the trade-offs that leaders and organizations have to make in order to survive and thrive. Um, And in some ways, those trade-offs, some of them have never changed. They've always been universal. And other elements of them have changed completely in the last 30 years since we've discovered that, that there are limits to growth and that we're living on a planet with very finite resources and that we're actually overshooting our planetary boundaries quite seriously in four out of the nine areas critical to life on Earth. So um, we, did, we did have a previous program where we outlined a lot of the background to this. But let me go straight to the point that Marine made, which was that we have literally in, in, uh, in the book, A Leader's Guide to Thriveability, summarized the insights of the people that we found to be at the forefront of leadership in uh, the last five years. And we were looking for a couple of different things. The first quality we were looking for in, in these leaders was the fact that they recognized what we would call a context based approach to leadership, in other words, they fully understood not only the uh, parameters of their own organization and how that worked in terms of processes, people, systems, and politics as it were, but also understood their business ecosystem, how their business model was uh, you know fitted into and was adapted or well or badly to that system. But they also understood that their business ecosystem fits inside a much larger set of systems uh, called um, natural ecosystems and social ecosystems, where your stakeholders in a world which is totally transparent, where you have nowhere to hide, your stakeholders basically can begin to see everything you do. And increasingly, they are highly critical, incredibly well-informed, and um there's there's literally um it, it becomes very difficult to bullshit them to put it simply. Um as uh we know in the past public relations I think there are four people in public relations to every journalist in the United States. So who produces the news? There are three public relations professionals in England for every journalist. So who produces the news in England? You're right. It's public relations professionals and who pays them? <laughs> Lord, guess what? Uh, Our large and even not so large corporations and governments to get their points across. Now, why is that important? Simply because thriability relies on the ability to face up to some hard facts and to adapt those facts, what the leadership expert at Harvard, Ron Heifetz, called the adaptive challenge. We're facing the biggest adaptive challenge of our species ever right now, And uh, those leaders who get that and and operate in the right way will have a good chance of being successful and ensuring their organizations are successful going forward. And those who don't will have a pretty difficult time of it, I I would suggest. So that's that's a bit of context. What is thrivability? Well, it's essentially a way of understanding how to maximize the thriving of the key stakeholders of an organization for the minimum footprint of natural and manufactured capital. In other words, how can you have totally engaged employees, delighted customers, uh, loyal and uh, very um, effective suppliers, and business partners around the world that really love working with you? Now, that sounds already like a recipe for success, doesn't it, Marina? It doesn't sound like that in itself is particularly rocket science, does it?
2: No, it sounds not too far from what we've done traditionally.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what you might call common sense at one level. Uh However, what's not common sense is, is the information you need, the decision model, and the integration you need to make these decisions, yeah, about which new product to invest in, what innovation pathways you need to take your organization down to ensure it's sustainable, Um, the the exact way in which you do uh, delight your stakeholders and and ensure that there's a mutually beneficial relationship between you Uh, and the way in which you conduct that engagement and do the math, as it were, in terms of how you balance out the different capitals. And we'll talk about those capitals later on in the program, but just so that everyone's aware that there are six capitals in uh, the current system that we use to think about management and leadership. And uh, when I say we, I'm talking, yeah.
2: One of the things that we've been featuring um, is uh, segments on analytics. So we have also had a couple of conversations about how might leaders uh, begin to, to build a different scorecard and collect the data from the volumes of data they have. And for people who are collecting that, how we can use those scorecards differently. So this seems to dovetail perfectly into what you're talking about with regard to giving our leaders better scorecards.
3: Absolutely. And in fact, it's no accident that I'm sitting here with some of my colleagues today, uh, the day before we start uh, the Sustainable Brands New Metrics Conference with somewhere near 300 sustainability and business and investment professionals uh, from all over the world. And the fact is that we are talking exactly about that. How do you metric uh, the, the key factors that enable you to be successful in your business and to have a sustainable brand, for example, Yeah, uh-huh. uh, and a sustainable organization? And there, are, there are, are many, many dozens of speakers, which includes myself and some of my colleagues in the Thriveability Foundation, talking about the different perspectives You can take on answering that question. So let me take one angle in particular. And this angle, when you talk about analytics, is what we're calling our Thrivability Index. Yeah. So you talk about a scorecard, but as you know, when you play golf, uh, there's a stand handicapping system, right? And there's a golfing association which ensures that all golf courses uh, are, 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 you know, handicapped in the same way. (laughs) Uh So that you you know, uh, not, not that it's always perfect, but that When you play on a golf course and you've got an, an 18 handicap like I used to have, um, then you uh, can sort of shoot that on any golf course in the world, theoretically, yeah? That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's how capitalism is supposed to work, too. The Sustainable Stock Exchange Initiative highlights the fact that, for example, when you're just measuring financial return on investment, companies can greenwash the hell out of everything they do, yeah? And they do. And they do. Uh, which is why they have some yeah, PR people and, and others. And, and make themselves look really good and call themselves a green brand or just you know jump on the bandwagon, as it were. And uh, the Sustainable Stock Exchange Initiative is going to require and is, well, there's already 20 stock exchanges around the world that have signed up. And we met the guy who started this, uh, who runs a $400 billion fund yeah, in London. And uh, Dr. Steve Wegood, uh, that is literally flying around the world at the moment, uh, promoting that on behalf of the United Nations and various other initiatives. And so the, the fact is the scorecard is becoming universal around the planet. We're seeing following the initiatives that, uh, for example, my colleague Rolf Thurm who's in the room with me at the moment. He was one of the founders of the Global Reporting Initiative, and that standardized global reporting. And included environmental and social factors, as well as sub governance factors, yeah, in reporting. The problem, and it's been acknowledged since the beginning, is that the GRI reporting system enables the companies to define their own uh, goal sets, yeah, and their own metrics Uh uh, within the framework of the reporting structure and to define what they believe is material to their business and what what is not. Now, you can imagine – thank you – you can imagine that with 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 that sort of leeway that they can pretty much you know spin a story whichever way they like right well and if it.
2: i if i yeah. don't care about the environment for example or if i preference profitability over the environment not that i don't care but but that to stay in business i have to be profitable quarter over quarter a, and I will select that as my primary decision criteria over environmental sustainability. That will drive all of my mindset, right?
3: Yeah, to- totally. And and the evidence suggests that, as Andrew Winston, uh, who's uh, one of the experts here at, at Harvard uh, and uh, where we are at the moment in Boston, and he's he's going to be with us in the conference, and we've been he's been in our think tanks. We've run five think tanks with several hundred thought leaders and practitioners and pioneers, you know the thrivability leaders uh-huh. around the planet in the last few months. And he basically said, yeah, the problem in the United States in particular is the quarterly earnings focus of most boards and chief executives. And it, 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 it works both ways. It, it, yes, it's true that the market wants quarterly reports. But companies like Unilever have told the market to go to hell. They've said, we're not going to waste our energy producing quarterly reports. We have long-term goals. It's to require long-term commitments and decisions, and we have to see things through in, in a longer time frame. So wasting our time giving a quarterly report is like having a weather report, right? You know, we know it's going to rain, the sun's going to shine, when the things go up, we know they go down. But our real investors, like a Buffett investor would be interested in, is the long-term creation of what we in thriveability call true future value, yeah? uh-huh. which is different to shareholder value-added. It includes shareholder value added, but it says, you know, financial capital isn't the only capital in town. And if all focus focus is rewarding financial capital, you end up uh, actually short, short-circuiting uh, the, the long-term value creation process. That's why Warren Buffett huh, doesn't tend to buy quoted companies. He tends to go for unlisted private investments. That's why Branson delisted the Virgin Group. That's why... Uh, Various companies that are pioneers in this space are not on the stock market. Yeah, precisely because it doesn't help them; it hinders them, right, in terms of making their long-term plans.
2: Okay, Robin, I'm going to stop you right here, uh, and we're going to go to break. Um, This is Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We are listening to Robin Lincoln Wood talk about Thrivability. Uh, Robin is one of my favorite thinkers in the world, and so really appreciating you are taking time to share your wisdom with us. We'll be back after break to continue to talk about leadership of Thrivability and also really delve into the six capitals that Robin has just introduced in his last comment.
1: Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Today, Enterprise Technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sun All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guests today, Please call in to 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf associates.com. Now, back to this week's program.
2: Welcome back, everyone. This is Maureen Metcalf. Our guest is Robin Wood. And we're talking about thrivability, specifically how do we deal with the large, complex challenges we're facing right now in our world. And so we wanted to shift a little bit to leadership. Robin's going to talk about some of what he's seen, and then I'll, I'll talk about specifically how we're defining leadership at Metcalf and Associates. And Robin and I are working with very similar people, uh, in fact, the same people, and so our our frameworks may differ slightly and the underlying theories around them are, are very much the same. So Robin, you were giving an example about, uh, during the break, why don't you share that with our listeners?
3: Yes. I, the, the, well, in one of our recent think tanks, uh, run by the Thrivingly Foundation, one of the members of the international uh, panel on climate change was essentially saying that, um, the problem we have, and, and she's, she's one of, I think there are, uh, there are several hundred people on the IPCC, and there's, there's thousands of scientists, yeah, and it's the consensus of several thousand scientists, of leading scientists on the planet, that have determined, uh, I think, 5,000 in total, that uh, we, we are heading for a uh, beyond three degree warming scenario, which with vicious feedback loops could end up being a six-degree scenario, which means we're all toast, uh, as well as you know, 90% of life on Earth. So that's a pretty sobering thing to have to live with. Uh, can you imagine going to all those meetings every day and hearing the latest thing about how the Greenland ice cap is melting twice as fast as we imagine? And, and we thought the East Antarctic... Uh, you know, was, was melting. But now we've discovered that the West Antarctic is starting to melt, and that wasn't even included in any scientific calculations. <laughs> Ow! You know? Um, and, and so everything's happening faster than it should be in the models, which is not good. So there's Catherine O'Brien, uh, who's sitting there on the IPCC, and she's one of the few members who actually is into human beings. Uh, because you can imagine, most physicists and biologists <laughs> are... Into natural science, right?
2: Uh-huh. And,
3: and there are no people in natural science. People are just like the enemy there because they're, they're, they're screwing up the, the, the ecosystems of the earth, the oceans and the climate and everything else. And just look at recent events. I mean, you know, people on the East Coast are now terrified, right, uh, of, of these hurricanes coming through. And luckily, I think the last one, Joaquin, is going to miss. But, you know, everybody now knows it's climate change stupid, right? So
2: uh, a friend of mine had to cancel their daughter's wedding this weekend because of Joaquin. So so it, it is having an and I'm sure this is not the first wedding in history canceled because of weather, but it seems to be more common.
3: Oh def definitely it statistically is more common there's just no, no denying it it's it's that's become hard scientific evidence in the last 5 years where the scientists before wouldn't commit themselves totally to saying it's probably you know caused by climate change. Now there's there's no question about it. There's you know, there's almost zero doubt uh, at all in the science. So, given that, okay, and given that we now face this massive adaptive challenge, why, uh, the fundamental question is, why do we treat it as a technical problem to be solved? Yeah? Well, the answer is, I, you, yeah, you tell me, you know, let's start with that.
2: Well, and I think the distinction you're making here, and this was a really important one for me as I was starting to study this, is a technical challenge is a problem I can fix. An adaptive challenge is one where I actually have to change myself and my thinking to even find the solution. and. I love the phrase that the problem will work on me as much as I work on the problem, that I will often have to change my mindset and my behavior to bring resolution to the problem. Is mm-hmm. that how you're defining it, uh, yeah. fix or yeah. correct what I've missed?
3: Absolutely. It, it it brings into play what we'd call second-order science, which is the fact that first-order science enables us to see patterns in, in an objective way over the world around us, Yeah. And a lot of business strategy and accounting and all the disciplines we're used to in business are based on first-order science. We count stuff. We see patterns. Things go up. They go mm-hmm. down. We look for correlations. What caused that? You know, we're built, built to last, good to great, uh, in search of excellence, every single business book is looking for the holy grail, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, ten, the 10 rules of success, uh, which, are, which, of course, are heuristics, and they're helpful But don't be fooled, because in your specific situation as a CXO or leader in some sort of context, uh, what is happening, as you say, is quite unique. It's about you. Uh, And that comes down to a second order science, which is the ability to understand and reflect upon the frames and perspectives we're using to understand the patterns we think we're seeing. If that makes sense
2: and i have to in in many cases fundamentally change my mental algorithm my my leadership operating system to interpret the information differently and mm-hmm. that will inform me to take different action yes
3: precisely and it and 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 you know again we mentioned him in the last program and i hate mentioning this guy because you know he's It's like Google, everybody, every management guru says, oh, Google's the way to be, you know, like as if every company is going to be like Google, give me a break. That's just BS. Um, Yeah, for certain people, Google's cool, but it's not a role model, certainly for 99% of businesses. Mm -hmm. Same with uh, Steve Jobs. I mean, deeply flawed human being. We all know that. We've probably all read the the biography of him. Um, He himself had confessed. He, you know, he screwed up a lot. Uh, but what was his genius? His genius was the ability to take these unusual perspectives and try them out. Yeah? He, he, he fundamentally uh-huh. questioned even his own he, – he continually questioned his own assumptions about the world. And that meant he was able to learn faster than anybody else around him. And sometimes it meant he made big yeah. mistakes. And sometimes it meant he it made massive breakthroughs. And, but there really is no alternative. If you want to you discover know, new we think you have to. Sorry, Maureen, carry on.
2: So in, in a prior show, we talked about leadership developmental levels or leadership maturity, and it is at these later stages where we have the maturity of, of our thinking process and our leadership process to realize that many of the things we see in the world, uh, we have made assumptions about. They're not, in fact, concrete and true. They you would you and I would be in the same room, we would observe something and we would interpret it differently. So built into that is a set that I create a set of assumptions based on my perspective. So what I think you're saying is Steve Jobs is able to say, Wow, my I see this differently than most of the people around me and I want to test my assumptions rather than I see this it's true and if you don't see it might be missing something does that capture
3: yeah exactly it's the difference between Carly Fiorina and and Steve Jobs that we can see here quite clearly you know there's 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 one person uh the aforementioned person who clearly demonstrates she's learned nothing in the last 10 years at all right um and um there was somebody we so we watched jobs evolve in in the last 20 years of his life the mm-hmm. man became quite a humble, almost wise kind of guru dude you know that he would give these incredible speeches that would move people to tears and stuff because he'd had to really go through a deep fundamental personal journey of success and failure and and be at the point of like you know oh my god well, you know i've screwed up totally you know it's all over i'm <laughs> and my life's over kind of thing and, and actually, ironically, it's company. a certain – sorry, Maureen, say again.
2: Oh, at one point he got kicked out of his own company, right? Uh, that has to be home. Yeah, like.
3: that's right. The board fired him because he was playing funny games with the Macintosh division and he wouldn't let anybody know what was going on, and they didn't like that. <laughs> and he, he just he – just, anybody who got in his way he just called him an asshole, you know. He said, you don't get it. You're just, <laughs> you know, just being an asshole. Which is not the best way to speak to your board because, um, you know, they, they have egos. And they get, yeah, they get upset. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, he, he, he learned that that wasn't the best way to manage his, his board of directors and, and the hard way. But what it meant was when he got kicked out, he, he, he took some, well, some of the engineers that he admired and they developed a whole new operating system, which actually is the basis of every single uh, Apple product today. Yeah? Uh-huh. you, you couldn 't which is why they 're kind of unique and uniquely uh, uh, performant in certain categories that that because Microsoft never did that, Microsoft never reinvented mm-hmm. itself. it just takes the same old bloatware from last year and then rewrites it in maybe a different language or something, and then you know it gets a little bit more effectiveness but um, you know the the Apple has come from behind basically uh, to be probably you know a much more effective computing system, along with fantastic things like iPods and iTunes and uh, you know, iPhones and i-this I and i-that, right? But that's uh-huh. all down to the fact that, that, uh, that he had to go through this, this tough process. Now, I'm not suggesting every executive has to go through the value of death you know, to, to, to have this epiphany, but a lot of the thriveability leaders in our book actually had moments like that. One of them we discussed last time was Ray Anderson. I don't know if you remember, the founder of Interface Carpets, the man who invented the carpet tiles? Yes. And, and uh, if you remember, the carpet tiles historically have been one of the most, well, along with carpets in general, one of the most toxic products on the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in and, fact, I bought
2: carpets that were made of recycled bottles at one point. It's just something that when they go in the landfills, we're not at least cre- creating additional waste. But either way, they, yeah, they create a, a toxic and lots of waste.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, and he realized after reading Paul Hawkins' um, a book on the ecology of commerce and various other influences, when his team asked him, you know, how are we going to assess our environmental impacts and stuff, he, he didn't have an answer. And after studying this he, himself, he realized, well, I, you know, basically what we're doing, we should all be put in jail. We will be put in jail in the future. And that epiphany led him to think, well, how can we, you know, we, we've, got to, we've got to fundamentally rethink this, what we call in thinking upside down, completely the opposite way around, and look at your business from a completely different perspective. And that led Interface to become one of the world's today most leading uh, and most sustainable carpet tile manufacturers in the world. And in fact, all the competitors have copied them. And a bit like Elon Musk, they share some of their intellectual property with their competitors as well, because they know that... The health yeah, of their industry is also their own health. Yeah, yeah, they collaborate, and and but you know, he, um, Ray Anderson was pretty much unique in in, in, his, in the world twenty five years ago. Yeah, there were just no other leaders like him, but today there are thousands, and the younger generation are looking to them as role models, and okay. uh, that's very very exciting.
2: It is exciting that
3: when I, yeah.
2: Go ahead. Let's go back to.
3: Well, let's go back to sort of put this in the context of leadership because I guess our, our listeners are probably thinking, well, so, okay, maybe I did a course in leadership or, you know, I did a leadership development program at some point somewhere, wherever it was done. I've read a few books. You know, I think I know what leadership is, right? I think I'm doing it more or less, you know. Now, this all sounds a little dramatic and and, uh, extreme. Uh, How does it connect with the sort of basic leadership 101 that we all are supposed to know and love as business leaders and leaders of any organization? What's your definition of leadership, for example?
2: Thanks a lot Robin that's a great question. I want to go to the innovative leadership books and how we're defining leadership is it's the process of influencing people so the foundational basic definition and then I go further to say directionally or we set the vision and tactically we drive the behavior so we set clear outcomes and we do that by impacting change in their their intentions or or their Belief in what they need to accomplish. So, I've not only said this is the thing you need to do, but I'm impacting them as a whole person. So, I'm impacting their thinking and their behavior. Additionally, as a leader driving organizations in transition, hopefully toward thrivability, I am also trying to impact their culture and their systems. So to update that, we actually, or, or to build on that, uh, we p- uh, published a chapter in the book Leadership 2050. It came out a couple of months ago, and, and interestingly, the introduction was written by Ron Heifetz that you mentioned, the person who talks about adaptive leadership. And in that book, we build out a little further the competency model and how leaders look at the process of leadership. So as we talk about leadership as not just a list of behaviors, but who I am and what I do, we really try to define that uh, leadership operating system or the algorithm that defines how they lead, who they are. So that it's no longer, I think a lot of leadership texts were really checklists for if you do these specific things, then you're a good leader. And that's fine in a relatively stable time. In a time of massive change, following the checklist could be highly insufficient. So by addressing kind of the operating system for how leaders think about the process of leadership, then we should produce leaders who are able to navigate these very challenging times in a way uh, that allows them to be more effective than if they were doing traditional leadership. So an example, one of our competencies is a 360 degree thinker, and we call that taking a balcony view. So it's exactly what you've talked about with high fits that they are Standing out of the system and looking at it as an overall system, which means questioning assumptions and looking at competing commitments and personally learning themselves and creating a system that's learning. So it really is creating not only a highly effective series of processes but a, a self-learning organization so that as we're thinking about Thrivability and the Thrivability Indices, that every time I integrate the measures into my thinking that I am, that I am updating how I perform. So it creates a different kind of leadership than we grew up with and than many of us have been over the course of our careers. And those behaviors got us to where we are and, for many of us, highly successful. And I think what Robin and I are both saying is to, to continue to build on that success, we need to update our operating system for leadership, just like I've updated my computer system to Windows 10 That at some point I would no longer consider using an outdated version of Windows because it, it doesn't interface with the programs I'm trying to run. So let's at this point go to break. This is Maureen Metcalf with Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, and our guest is Robin Wood, and we're talking about thrivability.
1: Metcalf & Associates is a management consulting and leadership development firm dedicated to helping leaders, their management teams, and their organizations implement innovative leadership and business practices to help create market differentiation necessary to thrive in this rapidly changing environment. listening to innovative leaders driving thriving organizations to reach maureen metcalf or her guests today please call in to 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com now back to this week's program
2: Hi, welcome back. This is Maureen Metcalf, and you're listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. We're with the esteemed Robin Wood, and he's going to now describe the six capitals that uh, thriveability is built upon. So, Robin, can you help us understand not only what they are, but also during break you talked about that idea of the learning organization, that what we're learning from is a much broader range of Measures. So, so kind of pulling back the thread of analytics that what I'm analyzing is broader stakeholder data, not the measures I used to use.
3: Exactly, Maureen. I think, I think what's happening as the speed of change accelerates and the amount of uncertainty, ambiguity, and volatility increase in, in our environment is that it's just no longer possible to be right uh, all the time by doing internal organizational analytics. Because your environment is moving faster than you are, much faster than you are, yeah? Now, what, we're, what we look at in drivability is something that's not actually, I mean, there's nothing new about the word stakeholders, for example. Stakeholders yeah. go back a very long way in the whole idea of corporate governance and in the whole idea of also community governance. And we recognize in that term that there are many, many different constituencies that leaders and organizations have to work with, and to some extent delight if their customers particularly, and engage if their employees, uh-huh. as well as the NGOs and all the other folks out there, the communities that are saying, "Well, what about us? Why, you know, why why do we get screwed when you mine your product here, or you drill for your oil, or you do whatever it is you do, right?" Uh-huh. So, yeah. so the, the that's pretty much, uh, you know, again. Part of the common sense of leadership, you have to work with those constituencies. But as the old law of politics says you can please some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time, you can not please all of the people all of the time, right? So you've got to basically understand who are your key stakeholders. Because... At the end of the day, you can't please all of the people all of the time. But what you can do is you can make those stakeholders you choose to work with much more thrivable, which then makes your organization thrivable. So it's an outside in collective form of intelligence. It's not to say you hand the steering wheel of your organization over to stakeholders, you know, you're not giving it to the World Wildlife Foundation, because they only speak for one perspective. And your job as a leader is to integrate with the board the multiple perspectives that are operating on your firm and the forces and pressures. Yeah. To Mm -hmm. create that adaptive uh, mindset that enables the organization to accelerate its learning and therefore become uh, more, not only sustainable because being sustainable is not very ambitious. It's just saying we're going to (laughs) survive. Wow. I have a sustainable marriage. Isn't that exciting?
2: (laughs) means you're not divorced.
3: Yeah, precisely. So, what we want and what all re- human beings respond to is a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, a sense of a destiny of some kind of special, uh, you know, role for each of us in the world. Yeah? And each organization, if it's uh, well led, has that sense for itself of who it is, what its unique social contribution is. And therefore, you know, when your grandkids or your kids ask you, well, you know, what, what do you do? <laughs> I know for some people it's very difficult to describe what they do actually to their nearest and dearest. But um, there's a kind of the, the equivalent of the guy, you know, being asked when he's hacking away this a block of stone, what he does a stonemason might say, well, I'm actually just, you know, hacking this block of stone over here so that it can be put on that other block of stone over there. And uh, you might go to a second stonemason and he might answer differently. He might say, well, actually I'm building a cathedral. Um, and it's it's a very cliched uh, story but the fact is that if you if you understand your sense of purpose is building a cathedral and you feel part of that bigger mission and that makes sense to you and and the people in your world it gives you a sense of purpose now that's necessary but not sufficient because what you need also to understand is that you're on the right adaptive path because when when we look at different industries in the world today some of them are actually losing value at an incredibly fast rate, uh-huh. uh, e.g. coal, oil, mining. Uh, one of the lo- world's largest mining companies was challenged last week by analysts saying, you're bankrupt. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's right. These giants, right? And they've, of they've course, sent their PR people out in force to say, no, we're not. But... Um, Well, there are many, many giant organizations today which have borrowed a huge amount of money and which are highly leveraged. Um, And uh, we can just take another example uh, of Volkswagen, which lost 30, somewhere 30 to 40 percent of its share value uh, in in a week uh, since it was discovered that they might end up having fines to pay of $18 billion uh, because their cars are equipped with software that when they're tested in a motor testing center for emissions control um, and compliance with environmental regulations, reduce the amount of nitrous oxide in the exhaust by a factor of 40 times. In other words, the engine adjusts to produce the minimum nitrous oxide in the test, and you drive that out of your Volkswagen out back on the road, and it's producing 40 times the amount, which is clearly uh, a massively... um, Fraudulent thing to do. And so that's the year uh, resigned, Martin Wintercorn. He's under investigation. And of course, the whole team's under investigation. Because why? Because what they did was basically say, hey, you know what? Um, if we turn a blind eye to things, um, like everybody else is kind of doing it as well. Yeah. It's a very competitive industry, the motor industry. It's very macho, very testosterone driven. And so it's quite possible that they, you know, perhaps Martin Wintercorn didn't know about it. But Certainly, some people in the organization knew about it. Now, you could just say that's an old-fashioned failure of ethics. What's that got to do with thrivability? But the fact is that it's because it was an environmental regulation that – and the fact that we've got so much data on what that, that is doing, the air in our cities is doing to our children yeah, and to their health and how many people it kills here. year. that knowledge now means that you can't get away with that anymore. Maybe 10, 20 years ago, they could have said, "Ah, here, we'll slap you over the wrist with a small fine. No way no way today. Now, that's where, that's where thrivability starts, the environment. The fact that we, we, we know that we've got limits to growth, we know we need to respect planetary boundaries, we know that each industry should be trying to understand its own allocation of what it should be allowed to emit and voluntarily subscribe to certain limits to what it will emit in terms of greenhouse gases. And that has been the trend in, in sustainability. And with the Global Reporting Initiative, and many other initiatives, this has become the way to run your company. This has become good governance. Yeah? Uh-huh. And alongside that good governance on the environmental front, which is what we measure uh, as one of the aspects of thrivability, along with all the major measuring tools, so we're not reinventing the wheel there, uh, but we're making sure those are science based and with allocation to industries and companies. The second piece is the social side of your impact. So you're looking at you know, uh, how many uh, sweatshops uh, have, you know, how many people have died in the sweatshops that make yeah. the T-shirts that your company runs, you know. And we're all familiar with all the stories of Nike and many other large brands, again, suffering massive damage to their reputation, huge hits to their share price, precisely because they thought, well, it doesn't matter because they're not actually a direct part of our supply chain. They're subcontracted there. You no, know, we don't know about them. Well, that's no longer acceptable. You have to actually know every single aspect of your supply chain down to where the cotton comes from, yeah? And, uh-huh. and uh, you know, is that growing in a, in a sustainable way? So the responsibility in business has gone up dramatically. Now, we, we, we know leadership. Leadership is a key part of, of governance, yeah? Because governance is overall the steering mechanism that we use to steer ourselves and our organizations and our societies. And there are three parts to governance that we, 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 we like to refer to in, in thriveability. The very first part is authority that you have to know who to put in charge to do the right thing. You know? And you then hopefully have the processes and procedures in place that enable them to get on with it. And you can delegate that. And that's part of being a good leader. Uh, I guess that's, that goes back many millennia. That's not new. But then the second piece of it is decision making. And with thrivability, our focus is on the integrative, integrated decision models that enable you to understand the trade-offs that you're making. Um, mm-hmm. Now, in Volks, Volkswagen's case, that may not have helped them. Why? Because maybe they'd pushed the diesel technology to its limits, yeah? And as Elon Musk says, this is now the end of the diesel as a, you know, trying to promote the diesel as a, a sustainable form of, of transport. And finally, the electric uh, cars will, you know, come come into their own uh, and that that may be true. Uh, so the uh, decision making capability uh, is, is is looking ahead and saying, you know, we should have got out of diesel two or three years ago. We shouldn't have been trying to prolong it forever, which is what Volkswagen did and which ended up in this sort sore, sordid tale, <laughs> sorry tale of, of, of uh, um, you know, the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the bottom line is that uh, the decision-making is really at the heart of this thing because you can, you can put the right people in the right place, the right authorities, but if, if they're making the wrong decisions, uh, then you, you, you're going to fail. And finally, of course, you have accountability. Now, we saw accountability at, at work, right, very dramatically. Uh, Volkswagen mm-hmm. is being held accountable. Yeah. Uh, Glencore will be held accountable. You know, th- there is nowhere to hide anymore. Uh, really. And accountability is very strong. And, but what happens with accountability is it puts fear into people and particularly fear into the senior executives who know they can't control every variable, right? You can't. Right. Yeah. And,
2: that,
3: and that's, where, that's where culture and systems come in. Because as much as I'd like to be a thrivable leader and, and, and be a role model for how we should walk the talk in, in, in the future, I also know that I have to have a culture in my organization and the systems in place that enable us to uh, be be thriveable and take thrivable decisions and have that that learning loop we talked about earlier and that's where your key stakeholders are critical because they are your best eyes and ears as to what's actually going on yeah Yeah <laughs> there they're, they're you're there they they'll tell you what's happening and if you're not just think if you're not just thinking about you know, measuring what they're doing as some sort of but actually engaged in real authentic relationships with your stakeholders, that'll be even deeper and the kind of learning and insights you're going to get are going to be much greater. And thrivability is a key to understanding how to build those kind of relationships with key stakeholders with the metrics that enable the win 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 that needs to happen for the for the whole ecosystem and your organization to be thrivable in the longer run.
2: One of our previous guests, Gary Ross, talked about having um, customer boards of directors. So so they're obviously not your – I guess he called them customer advisory boards. So picking his largest or uh, most involved customers and and creating a formal structure to gather the information. So having the quantifiable metrics – collected but also having as you've said the relationship with folks that allows me to get their insights in ways that surveys and data might not provide
3: exactly that's that's exactly it
2: so are we about ready to wrap up do you have any final comments in this framework in in the six capitals Yes.
3: let me me just uh, summarize Essentially, we have to move from a degenerative exclusive economy driven by monocapitalism where financial capital takes all priority over everything else, yes, Uh to a regenerative inclusive economy where multiple capitals are recognized and the multiple capitals are in the thrivability equation. We have to maximize the thriving of human and social capital for the smallest amount of natural manufactured capital. And we have to use intellectual and financial capital to drive the innovation cycle for that adaptation to occur, which is the, where the key role of leadership comes in, is how I allocate the different capitals and try and make sure that I regenerate them as much as I possibly can with my, my stakeholders and my business partners. So that means we all have a stake in the future of those capitals because those capitals are what are going to keep us alive, literally, as a business you know, and as a society uh-huh. and, and as a human civilization.
2: So, so that makes sense that that my equation has changed. It, the old stuff is still valid, but my stake the the list of capitals and the list of stakeholders that I have to consider to thrive has expanded beyond what it was a, a short period of time ago
3: absolutely and 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 this is going to become de facto standard of how You approach governance, corporate governance, and boards and executives will be held accountable to these standards. And the conference we're at this week has all of the people engaged in the process, including the United Nations and the the many regulatory bodies, coming to understand precisely how we would implement such a multi-capital operating system for a regenerative, inclusive business and a regenerative, inclusive economy. So this isn't going to go away. This is going to get tighter stronger but let's put a positive uh, spin on it because actually if you think in terms of thrivability you're already taking your organization in that direction and that is a competitive advantage because believe me a lot of people don't know what's going to hit them just like the chief executive of Volkswagen didn't.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay so so we're going to wrap this up now I want to thank everyone for joining us, especially Robin. I just really appreciate your insight. And every time you and I speak, I walk away feeling smarter and also a little um, encouraged on this journey that that we've just for me just sticking a toe in the water so i want to thank everyone for joining the voice of america show innovative leaders driving thriving organizations i invite you to send us email at info at metcalf and and i'll read those on the air i want to hear how you're doing your own experiments and what we can do to support you thank you